Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick, your host. We have big, exciting news to announce here on the American Birding Podcast. It is November. We are coming to the end of the year of the Pileated Woodpecker. And I want to thank all of you who have shared your Pileated Woodpecker stories with me this year. It's been fun to hear them, to see the Pileated content on the ABA's Birding Magazine, to celebrate the art by Juan Trevieso. It's been a good year. I think Pileated Woodpecker has been a very good bird of the year. But as 2021 comes to a close, we look forward to 2022's bird of the year. And we have it. It's chosen. It's in the bag. We have the artist. That is Christina Ball, who incidentally has been on the podcast before, back when we did the live show at the 2019 Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. So we already knew she was a good sport, friend of the ABA. Anyway, she does fantastic Visually exciting, very distinctive work, and uh, she has really done the 2022 Bird of the Year proud. But really the best thing about this year is that with the pandemic waning, with vaccines freely available, go get your shot if you haven't already, is that we can get together again and celebrate the Bird of the Year in person like we did back, oh my goodness, it feels like so long ago, back in 20. 2020. So we're doing that with a big bird of the year reveal party in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, historic home of American ornithology. And according to our stats, the sixth most popular market for the American birding podcast, it will be Sunday, December 19th at the triple bottom brewery from four to 7 PM. Christina will be there. Many ABA staffers will be there as it is the closest major city to our headquarters. I will be there if that moves the dial for any of you at all. I will have birded my way there by way of Amtrak. We'll have food, we'll have drinks, music, all the bird and birding talk that you have been missing for the last 20 months. I know you've been missing it. And we will reveal the 2022 bird of the year. It is a good one. You will like it. I like it. I I may or may not have lobbied fairly strongly for it. So if you don't like it, well, blame me, I guess. Uh, but the party is still going to be good, regardless. Tickets are $20 ahead, 25 at the door. We'll try to live stream the reveal, but we cannot live stream the party. Be there if you can. On the show this week, tis the season for winter finches. Ron Pittaway's winter finch report is a staple of the season now, after Ron's retirement, run by the appropriately named Tyler Hoare. He joins me to talk about what it's like to take over such a venerable birding effort and exactly how he makes those Eerily predictive predictions, all after this week's reference. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the very end of October, beginning of November 2021. It is a first record bonanza this week, starting with the surprising and delightful story of the stellar sea eagle currently undergoing a tour of eastern Canada. After several sightings in the late summer in Quebec and New Brunswick, the bird presumably the same individual, was discovered by birders again, this time in Falmouth, Nova Scotia, where it is a provincial first 
The count is on now for how many states and provinces in which this bird could be recorded. No doubt, birders in Newfoundland and Maine are taking bets as to which direction it will go next. There has been a significant push of razorbills into the eastern Great Lakes with several birds seen on the north shore of Lake Ontario around Toronto. That push undoubtedly was behind the discovery of an individual on Lake Champlain on the New York-Vermont border. It was seen in Vermont waters and thus represents a first for that state. Out California, which has not gotten the attention it might deserve this fall, but an eastern towhee in San Diego would represent a first record for that state, which is a big deal for a state with the largest list. Obviously, with this bird, tricky hybrids need to be ruled out. Eastern and spotted towhees were once considered a single species and readily interbreed, but photos look quite good and more vocalizations evidently sound good for Eastern as well, according to observers. And to Arizona, where an American woodcock at Cave Creek Canyon in Cochise County would be a state first. Photos were obtained, and this one is a bit of a no-doubter. If you are keeping track, and I am, there are 50 U.S. states and 13 Canadian provinces and territories, plus D.C., which makes 64 jurisdictions in the AVA area. All but 12 have recorded firsts in 2021. Arizona and California were the biggest holdouts until this week. Only one, incidentally, Manitoba has not recorded a potential first in 2020 or 2021. So get on it, Manitoba birders. Those are the highlights in the rare bird world this week. If you want the entire roundup, check out the rare bird alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA or get those rarities as soon as they happen. You can join the ABA rare bird alert group on Facebook. The annual winter finch forecast is easily one of the highlights of the birding year for many of us. Ron Pittaway's detailed breakdown of what we in the East and Midwest especially can expect in the way of winter birds is the perfect combination of birding science and birding art. When Ron retired in early 2020, we worried that the forecast would be retired as well, but that was happily not the case. Ron's collaborator, Tyler Hoare, stepped in and with the help of the Finch Research Network, brought the forecast into the 21st century. It is now... I have to say, better than ever. The 2021-22 forecast was released last month, and Tyler Hoare is with me to talk about that forecast, how it all works. Welcome, Tyler. How are you? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm doing quite fine. Just waiting for the finches to show up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so how long had you been working with Ron before you before you took this all over on your own? Uh, I've been supplying information to Ron for almost since the start of his finch report. He wow used to discuss we used to hawk watch near my home where ron and i used to show up and on slow days we used to discuss finches and he kept selling me on the tree crops and that got me more interested and as i started working more up in the boreal forest and around i started collecting information for him yeah I mean, how does it all work like what 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 do you, what information are you looking for what sort of people are you going to to get that information how do you build this network of sort of informants to to draw on well, Ron developed a nice, in 20 years, a nice roster of informants. Yeah. I've used that and then spread it out a little more to other people. And actually, want any and all comers, I'm quite inclusive. Your <laughs> your skill level in, in looking at tree seeds, I will take anything. Because <laughs> we have some people who are professional foresters, some mm-hmm. forest ecologists, and I just have some bird watchers who just stop and look at cones for me. Yeah. And give me an idea. And I try to take in each section of the boreal and around the great lakes in eastern north america i try to get as many reports as i can and try to aggregate them together to get a better picture of what seeing. i've noticed some spots and i'm sure ron has in previous years 
you got two different observers in the same spot describe the cone crops totally different. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So it, when it, on a very fine scale uh, examination, it's pretty hard to do. But when you get people giving you in this over a general area, geographical area, giving you a very similar picture, you know, yeah. it's getting pretty solid what it is. Yeah. How many, how many people do you have giving you information? Uh, this year, I think I had 51 people this year and last yeah. year it was 54. So do the, do the, like the foresters that you're, you're working with, are they bird people? Do they have an interest in birds or have they gained an interest in birds over the years? Because you know, they sort of know why you and Ron have been asking them for this information. Oh, some of them are very, very interested in the birds and the crops. And they gave yeah. me extremely beautifully detailed reports on all the trees, what they see when the birds arrive, when they haven't seen them. Other foresters just give me a really good detail of what the crops like, what the soil moisture was like hmm. in the forest fire season and that. Yeah, and that affects the, I guess that affects the seed crops and the fruit crops and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. It's like last year, west of Lake Superior had the cone crop. Uh-huh. This year, it's east of Lake Superior that has a cone crop. And about an hour west of Lake Superior, the whole moisture regime changed this year. And we had bad droughts. We had over 1,100 forest fires in Ontario alone. And all western Canada was burned and ores and drought. But hmm. just once you got away from Lake Superior, it's a fact of moisture just disappeared and then the cone crops and the berry crops just dropped in the drought. Huh. I know that you you all mostly focus on the eastern eastern Canada and the area around the Great Lakes. Uh, do you have any plans to move west and try and get a sense of the movements of those finches or is it a little more complicated once you start getting once altitude starts playing a role in how the birds move around? Oh, yes, altitude does play a big role. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. <laughs> I never thought I would be a forest entomologist, <laughs> a person who looked at weather maps for not just us, all the way up, weather systems that are leaving Japan coming across yeah. on almost a daily basis to see what rainfalls are going to come in. Uh, in terms of expanding, we have... Reporters there all the way up into central Alaska, the Yukon, along the Pacific coast in the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. We're trying to get a much more wider roster now to try to actually expand the forecast out more to get some of the species of the altitudinal species. And since species like white wing crossbills, they just swing back and forth wherever the cone crop is. So this year they swung and went east in you could visibly see an e-bird in reports before it even asked people in late June, tens of thousands of them went to the east side of North America from the West mm-hmm. wow. looking for the food. Wow. That's pretty wild. Has e-bird played a role in how you think about these bird movements? I imagine, you know, e-bird still has an issue because the the areas that you're looking, you're trying to get information for are still, you know, pretty far out there. Not a ton of observers. There's still a bit of a black hole in uh, in northern Canada when it yeah. comes to, to eBird. But uh, I imagine that once the birds start moving, you can get a pretty detailed look at at where they're going, how they're moving, uh, you know, more detailed than perhaps you had in the past. Yeah, it does help quite a bit to get the general bigger picture. Yeah. That said, like, most of the boreal forest in Canada has no roads or very little roads. Right. And pe- <laughs> people don't really do much eBirding up there uh, away from the roads. But you can see the e-bird, when they start to move, yeah, you start to see on the edges 
and here's some of the talents people who do regular e-birding start putting the reports in. I would just wish the one thing of e-bird. I just wish I could get the reports very di- as different numbers because oh, right yeah. now when a balloon comes up, it could be a hundred white wing crossbills or one white wing crossbill. Oh right, yeah. So yeah, I have to go right. through there what's, and look at all the new reports <laughs> to try to figure out: is this one or two birds just roaming around, or is this a pulse this coming a real through? Movement. Yeah. Huh. What is it like to sort of take the reins of? such a venerable part of birding science and culture. You know, Ron has built this winter bird forecast up into this, like a real pillar of, of birding, certainly in the Eastern part of the continent. What is it like to have, have that responsibility on you now? Well, I knew it was big in Canada. I didn't know it was almost <laughs> cult-like status in the U- U.S. And yeah. Well, we got we to gotta look to you guys to see where the birds are coming down. <laughs> yes, it was, it was uh, pretty intimidating. I was thinking this year before, sorry, last year before Ron announced it, just doing my regular drive between my work sites. And I said, mm, maybe we should give Ron, see if he needs an apprentice because he's been doing this <laughs> for 20 years. Yeah. And then next day I'm on this, the freeway and I could hear, see that Ron was say retiring. I was like, oops, pulled right over the side <laughs> of the freeway, called Ron, went, okay, I want this. Yeah. Yeah. And he wanted more time to go out there and bird watch, and I'm the local yeah, e-bird reviewer, and he birds my area quite heavily. And I can see, yeah, he's actually enjoying bird watching this year in August and September, which I haven't seen him do in several years. And <laughs> I'm the one behind the desk in my right. basement looking at weather maps and reading insect infestation reports. Yeah, a blessing and a curse, I guess, to be yeah. uh, to be at the head of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, is there a data point? Uh, that turns out to be really important that birders might not know about that sort of impacts the movement of these birds. So there's something kind of subtle out there that drives whether we see pine grosbeaks in, in upstate New York or not in a given year. That's just as an example. For like pine grosbeaks, it's the, since they rely heavily on mountain ash, if the, mm-hmm. if when the, you, the flowering of the trees happens and we have a frost, Mm-hmm. Or, or a bad wet weather, and the, these flowers don't get pollinated. The reports of good flowering bushes I get change because the berries just don't show up. Yeah, like instantly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm I'm actually looking in the spring in May. I'm actually looking at weather maps across the boreal just to see where there's frost warnings and that, figuring out where there may be a little issue that pops up. Yeah. So you know we're we're well into fall migration now. Uh, the birds that you predicted to move a month ago are actually actually moving. When, like, when do you know that your predictions are going to be more or less accurate? At what point in the year? Uh, probably by mid-November. They most birds have usually shown their hand and mm-hmm. they, they go for the move. Uh, the white wing crossbills. We knew they came east. And I don't I didn't know how many millions came east, but now they're starting to show their hand. Because I was getting reports that on the island of Newfoundland that they showed up in July and they were breeding. Okay. Some birds are moving out of that area, more towards that big belt of food that goes from basically Michigan across Newfoundland, right on the, the Canadian-U.S. border. Yeah, you were, you were talking before we started about, uh, you know, Tadasac had a huge, yeah. huge movement last week of white-winged crossbills. Is that related to that, that yeah, what you're talking about there? They were cleaning out their food to the north. Like Jesse, who is the uh, observer of the morning flight 
every day. He gives me great information. He said, yeah, they had white birch seats and then the white wing crossbills showed up and cleaned them out. And now the red poles are showing up there looking for the, the birch seeds and they're gone. Yeah. So they're they starting to move. Yeah. Yeah. And you you mentioned something about like the mountain ash, the, the pine grow speaks and the Bohemian waxwings are overshooting the mountain ash that are in that belt right now. And they're just like, what are they, what are they doing? Are they going last year for the evening grow speaks here in, in, in Ontario? We had two big, huge flights mm-hmm. a week apart and they just all left Ontario. And it wasn't until early December that there was almost like a thir- third flight came out of the uh, spruce budworm areas and was filling in some of the back spots. So, so we actually did have some evening growth speaks compared to when we we're getting upset, watching them all leave Canada going, okay, please some <laughs> stay came, here. They came all the way down to where I live down in yeah. North Carolina last year. Yeah. I, I saw a big flock of them. It was neat. We had one spot in Lake Erie that had 1300 white wing crossbills fly by West at a hawk watch in one day. We haven't seen numbers like that in 40 years. Wow. The, the way they wanted to move that quickly and that fast. Huh. So what do you think is driving that? Just la- it's the fires in the in the west and no food out there and they just they just got to go. Uh in the east the budworms we have four huge outbreaks. This, this is the biggest outbreaks we've had in since the early 80s and the population yeah. has just been climbing and climbing enjoying this food source. And when they came out, we didn't have much of a berry crop or any seed crop here in southern Canada. So we thought at first they they would come. We knew they would come. We just thought they would work their way to, through the feeders on the way down mm-hmm. and lose the odd flock here and their feeders. But no, they decide, forget it. We're just going to pack our bags, take the express, and just go for it. <laughs> I guess that's one of the great mysteries. Like what motivates that sort of sort of movement? I mean, you would think that they would intuitively. You might think that they would stop at at the food all the way down and extinguish the food where they are mm-hmm. and then move south and then extinguish that food and then move south. But obviously there's something else going on. Like they must have a sense of there being an abundance of food and I don't know, south of the south of the U.S. Canada border. And they're just moving in, in bunches or have you seen this sort of movement before? Like, is this part of a pattern that is somewhat familiar? Or is this completely off the walls? I've seen this for siskins. Okay. Just flying over as flocks. You're looking there going, yeah. there's food here. You can stop. But they were decided to keep on moving. Hmm. It's usually they, a lot of these birds will work their way down as they move south, but they'll stop more often and right. look around. Like this year, the white wing crossbills that are coming out of the boreal, there's food up there in the boreal for them. It's not a great crop, but there is a widespread crop of white spruce and black spruce. But they're moving down to this thicker belt of uh, food and i've already had i've had three species of winter finches at my house east of toronto the most common one i've had two small flocks of white wing crossbills hmm. come over and i'm looking at them going and looking around my neighborhood going yes i have hundreds of spruce trees here and they're wall-to-wall cones you can stop and yeah. they're just flying by not even stopping huh. do you think they'll hit them on the way back like come February or March? If they're still there, I usually, when I get white wing crossbills, they usually show up in late November and they'll stay when we're on the neighborhood, just cleaning up whatever they can find. Huh. Yeah, I guess that time of year, it's a little more, you know, you get to the end of the winter, things are a little more desperate. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've survived however many months of cold weather and, and they're just kind of taking whatever they can get. Now uh, they can pick and choose, it almost feels like. Exactly. I think they're very selective. I was like, huh. Santa Tazak's <laughs> had a good flight of Bohemian waxings this week and pine grow speaks and the mountain ash crop there is bumper yeah and they're just going by it going not a care in the world it's it's almost like they sensing like yeah we have more food down here and i want to 
a waterfront home for the winter with some nice <laughs> yeah. sun here. Bank it, bank it for March when you're when things are a little more desperate. Come yeah. back up, come back up to hit it. So, you know, what fascinates you about winter finches and these movements? Is it the unpredictability? It's the unpredictability. It's the interaction between them and their actual forest ecosystem. You have to look at the trees to figure out what they may happen. Because mm-hmm. you think they're going to do something, but sometimes they throw things off. It's quite the unpredictability. Yeah. Like, I spent a week with my daughter. She wanted to see where daddy works up in the boreal forest. So I took her up for a 3000 kilometer drive to go to <laughs> st- see spots. And then she was very tolerant as I was looking at tens of thousands of trees going, okay, they may be here. They may be there. <laughs> <laughs> very tolerant. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, well, one thing I noticed this year in the, a lot of the boreal forest, the tamarack crop, which is a very significant tree is very poor this year. Hmm. 2019, when no finches even came to southern Canada because the food crop was so spectacular in the boreal, the branches of the tamaracks were bending. Hmm. In the last two years, their crop in eastern North America has been poor. This year, it's just terrible. Next to white spruce, that's in black spruce, that's the next most important tree. Is there a particular reason for that? Is it, you know, weather systems changing? Is it just, you know, two bad years? Is tamarack cyclical in some sense? Is it, or is it just... It's, it's, I think it's a combination of all those. I think all it's that, the yeah. drought. I think some of the frosts when they were flowering. I think they exhausted themselves pretty hard in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. You know, it is interesting the the extent to which, um, you know, the so-called uh, polar vortex has influenced the weather in the eastern half of the continent over the last couple winters. Almost counterintuitively, as the as the climate warms, the winters get more get colder. In, in this part of the continent. Does that seem to affect any of the birds? The evening grosbeak push in the last couple of years has been somewhat impressive. Are those birds coming down because of that, as that sort of late frost or, or kind of lingering cold weather or, or really deep cold? Is that really affecting the way these birds are moving um, in the last few years? The, they, for deep cold in the winter, they quite have, they have the food source. Yeah, they're quite happy. They, they, yeah. they don't care. Yeah, but it's the food source. When you get these colder, wintry weather events in the spring, and heavy frost, when a lot of these trees, like the cherry trees, are a good source of uh, the berries, are a good source of uh, food for gro- evening grosbeaks after they're done the evening, after the done mm-hmm. spruce budworms. So if they're not getting pollinated during flowering time, they're not having the berries for the grosbeaks. Right. So that when they get done with the budworms and they're looking around for a secondary source and there's no maple keys or ash keys or the cherries are like okay let's go which a lot of that was last year they i think they recognized when they were in their normal territories that yeah the food's not great let's just punch it hard as we can and then stop way down there huh, that's interesting so obviously your your focus of the winter finch forecast is is say, these uh these finches and sort of other attendant birds like red-breasted nuthatch and, and blue jay to some lesser extent. Mm-hmm. Do you see similar sort of movements, I guess, uh, in the fall with other spruce budworm species like, uh, I don't know, Tennessee warbler, Cape May warbler? Obviously, they're not going to move in the same ways throughout the winter, but you know their populations are closely tied to this food source as well. And you talked about this big spruce budworm uh, outbreak in, uh, in eastern Canada. Has that affected these species as well? I see a lot more of them in fall migration when I can yeah. go out. Where it used yeah. to be, you saw one Cape May in all 
August, September. Now you go out there, Cape May, Tennessee's Bay Breast. Late August, if you don't see one out in the morning birding, it's kind of odd. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I, like, I feel like it's the same way down here in the fall. Um, you know, we go through a period here in the southeast uh, where, you know, there's like a 10-day period where Tennessee warbler is one of the most common birds you can find just about anywhere. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, it's bay-breasted warbler. They kind of have those those pulses. But I definitely, like, have seen more of them in the last few years than I have ever remember seeing mm-hmm. before, which is sort of which is sort of interesting. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's funny how those things, the, the cascading effects of those, of this uh, spruce budworm outbreak seems to impact all these birds in, in similar sorts of ways. Yeah. The bud, the outbreaks are huge. So the population seem to be keying quite in. Like when I was up in Northern Ontario with my daughter, 3000 kilometers, I saw one evening grosbeak, huh. and it was in the Northeastern Ontario, a big spruce budworm outbreak there. And it just flew over. Yeah. Other spots where I usually when I'd go up there during years of non-outbreaks, you could run into evening grosbeaks speaks here and there scattered across or on sides of roads. So they all seem to have keyed in these huge areas where there's an easy food source. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we associate these birds with, with Northern climates, with cold weather. Um, in what ways do you think that climate change will impact their movements and their, their populations? Does the fact that they are so well suited to these nomadic lifestyles already provide some ability to survive in a, in a changing world or is it impossible to predict and the big picture is probably imp- impossible to predict yeah. exactly what happens for the, a lot of the smaller finches for the ones further south pine grow speaks they might have more of an issue as what they they were more towards the northern side of the boreal mm-hmm. effects up there but most of these winter finches they have evolved to be very nomadic and uh go where they need to go to survive especially yeah. the stuff like white wing crossbills yeah i think that they're you know thousands of kilometers thousands of miles across the entire continent to find find food this winter that's such a strange such a wild story mm-hmm. like in 2019 i was working on southern james bay on shorebirds and our camp our, was a first nations camp probably about 35 minute helicopter ride from the nearest village mm-hmm and every morning before we went out for shorebird, we sit there and have our morning coffee and just watch white wing crossbills and red poles pour over by the hundreds. We had a huge cone crop there, but they were just flying over them. But then you'd watch little groups break off from the main flock and settle down. And two days later, the male's singing away, the female's around. And then three days later, she's gone. And he's just yeah. sitting there happily on territory. And three weeks later, all of a sudden, you start seeing the first young popping up. Huh. Yeah, the very migratory, I think that's how they evolved to deal with fires in the past. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much cool stuff going on up there. What are you watching now? Like, where are, where is your attention focused now as these birds are moving? Right now, my attention is focused every morning in Tadasac. They have their yeah. great morning flights, getting a lot of the birds out of northern, northeastern Quebec, Labrador, coming down along the north shore of the St. Lawrence. They don't want to cross until it gets narrow enough. I'm watching there. I'm watching the, Hawk Watch in Duluth, because a lot of birds that are going to come out of the, the central boreal and central prairie provinces of Canada, if they're coming towards the, the east in search of food, depends if they're going to hit Lake Superior. If they hit Lake Superior north of Thunder Bay, they can probably swing around the north side of the lake. If they hit Lake Superior south of Thunder Bay, they're going to hit the lake shore and head straight down southwest towards Duluth in the upper Midwest. Yeah. Oh, cool. So what, what what's that looking like now? 
They've been having some good surges of uh, purple finches and that, and starting to see some evening gross beaks and some other winter finches starting to move through there. It's been warmer than usual up here in Canada this fall. So a lot of the birds just sat there and went, eh, I don't need to go yet. I can just <laughs> right. roam around here first. There's still some insects yeah. here I can eat. But the first snows are starting to show up in some spots of the boreals, which will start to move them more. Yeah. So when do you start looking at 2022-23 forecast? When does that work start? <laughs> Truthfully? Right around now, I yeah. usually go up in the I usually go up in the boreal forest almost every winter in the dead of winter February. I love it's just quiet. Go yeah. up there and see the finches, might see a lynx. But when I'm up there, I'm actually looking at what trees were looking like, the health of them, trying to see if there's any good buds. Like this is the spruce bud where Mary is. They're just devastating the balsam firs and the white spruce. Hmm. So I'm actually seeing areas where the forest is actually dying from multiple wow. years of the budworms killing them so the trees can handle several years but then they just can't do it anymore and yeah brown up wow so huh. we lose that we lose all that area for uh pretty much anything other than woodpeckers yeah and how long does that take to kind of cycle back around 15 20 years 20 years wow at least yeah huh wow, that's a lot of stuff going on out there mm-hmm but yeah, and then in the spring, I really look at, yeah, especially April, May, when the flowering season is for a lot of these tree right. species and shrubs to see what the conditions are. Huh. These birds need to know, get those pollinators. They need to see what those pollinators right. are up to. And that's going to impact everything for the summer and then into the fall and winter. Mm -hmm. It's huh. very, the, may just be, the report may just be on winter finches, but yeah, you have to look at everything. Now I totally know why Ron was never out in, in August and <laughs> September. So when you pulled over on the road that uh, that day and uh, volunteered to take it over, you, did you know what you were getting into? I had a slight idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then once I saw the announcement on Facebook and people all making the comments and this and that and just, just exploding up, I sat there and went, Yep. <laughs> Say goodbye to your family and go down to the basement <laughs> office and get ready to look at everything. <laughs> Tyler Hoare is the uh, Winter Finch Forecaster. His annual summary of the movements of boreal seed and fruit-eating songbirds is required reading for birders in the East. All of it is at finchnetwork.org now. Um, thank you so much, Tyler. It was great to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits, like our magazines, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us, and good vibes. I'm told that's a thing that people want now. You can get information about all our membership opportunities at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make David and Carrie Flaspolar of Hancock michigan yukari yoshioka and family of lake forest park washington Catherine fisher and all the fishers of milwaukee wisconsin and melody roberts of winter springs florida all of whom recently joined the aba for the first time and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so thank you so much for doing so it really does mean a lot welcome to the aba Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who keeps track of how many times he hurts his fingers extending the legs on his Scopes tripod, publishes it all every spring in the Winter Pinch Report. Technical production is from John Lowry, who keeps track of winter records of pine grosbeaks and pine siskins specifically, an endeavor he calls the Splinter Finch Report. 
Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who tell stories about all the snowy owls they've seen that turned out to be a weird target bag in their uh, winter flinch report. You can find us at ABA.org on Facebook and Twitter as American Birding Association or ABA. I'm a little surprised that our finch enthusiasts north of the border haven't referred to the annual exodus of their boreal birds into the U.S. as the winter finch deport. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.